You're listening to the Crypto Markets Wiki podcast, brought to you by John Lothian News. I'm Matt Rabel, Associate Editor at John Lothian News. Today we'll be speaking with Bill Uliveri, Principal and Owner of Senecal Capital Management LLC and CEO of Mining Rig Solutions LLC. Bill Uliveri is a former lead market maker for SIBO, the owner of two companies, an investment management firm called Senecal Capital Management LLC and Mining Rig Solutions LLC, a firm focused on cryptocurrency mining based in my hometown of Glenview, Illinois. Uh, he has been a noteworthy proponent of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology for years now and has given talks on the subject at numerous conferences and trade shows. Bill, welcome to the program. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks for having me. So uh, I guess to start out, I wanted to ask you about Mining Rig Solutions, mm-hmm. LLC, your uh, company that's based out of Glenview. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, Mining Rig Solutions was a, it's a small side business, I could, you could say a small side company, a second iteration, mm-hmm. to try to really stay in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space. So my partner, Corey Salikas, was one of the founding members of the Ethereum Classic Monetary Policy, along with Barry Siebert from uh, Grayscale uh, and Digital Assets. So Corey came to me about two and a half, three years ago and said that he wanted to get a business started where we would provide small-scale cryptocurrency mining operations in commercial real estate offices where there was space that was underutilized. You know, the empty basement, the empty crawl space, maybe a loft area. So we, our idea was that it would be a digital tenant, someone that could be some computer equipment in a room that would be generating revenue where a regular human tenant wouldn't be available. And so we did a, uh, a proof of concept for a hedge fund that was out along the North Shore and they had a beautiful basement, tons of space, certainly more electricity than we needed. And we set up all the cryptocurrency mining machines down for them. So that was a pretty interesting way of staying in cryptocurrency and figuring out a a way of monetizing the space. How has, uh, obviously, uh, in the past year or so, the cryptocurrency prices dipped significantly? Mm -hmm. How have you adapted to that? How has that affected things? (laughs) That's a great question, Matt. Well, we've adapted two ways. One is that we've pretty much turned the mining machines off. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the electricity and the cost of running the machines is greater well, it's at about a break-even right about now in, in the, at this time. Mm-hmm. So whatever our electric bill is, minus the rewards we receive uh, mining, pretty much it's, it's a slight winner, but not huge. Sure. So and we're just now beginning to turn the machines back on again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second way we've adapted is, you know, we're not really focusing our efforts on high net worth individuals or small, um, you know, real estate firms. Mm-hmm. We had a really interesting engagement uh, a few months ago with a company that's based out of Evanston. It's called BlocksRoute. Now, BlocksRoute provides a way for the communication of blocks that are solved to be propagated across the network faster, right? So we spun up two mining pools for them, one in the United States, one in the EU, and it, it permitted them to do their test net on a uh, custom privately held mining pool just for them to work out the kinks in their in their in their algorithms and their process. So that was to me is that's really more what I want to do. Um, and that is, you know, work with other technology companies that are looking to do proof of work solutions or like like BlocksRoute mm-hmm. uh, and and be able to uh, potentially monetize our expertise that way. Just for our listeners, 
What are, what are the simplest terms that you can explain blockchain mining? Because okay. I know that, that from being uh -huh. an attendee at one of your talks, why, why is cryptocurrency mining important for the technology? Well, there's at the time we started the business, there was two main ways that a blockchain quote unquote could exist. Uh -huh. And that is proof of work, which is like Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then there's proof of stake. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it would be uh, you're owning a master node or more of a kind of a hybrid blockchain like uh, Ripple or something along those lines. So when you require individual participants to validate the transactions that are going on between two people or every 10 minutes, you need people to provide computational work for that. That's what provides the integrity, the digital notary public, I guess you could say, you know, people with authority who are running the algorithm in order to keep track and timestamp all those records. Mm -hmm. You know, back when I first started at the Chicago Board Options Exchange in 1981 and a half, 1982, mm -hmm. we had to take all the buy orders, all the sell orders, and then we had to place them in this shoe and make sure that they were timestamped and ranked uh, chronologically and according to price. So it's very similar to just what we did on the trading floor in terms of keeping track of you know, incoming orders and activity. So as far as Bitcoin and altcoins and blockchain technology in general, such as mining machines, mm -hmm. for example, would you say that Bitcoin, altcoins and blockchain technology are investment opportunities best suited for investors with specific interests or trading and investing experience? Well, that's, a, that's also a good question. So I'm going to take off my mining hat and put on my <laughs> regulatory uh, state registered investment advisory hat. Man of many hats. Man of many hats, right. Everybody in this space is wearing more than one hat. Yeah. But to use the word investment opportunity is a term that I have a problem with. Because it is, it, it's high, even, so even though as an investment advisor, I have to disclaim and disclose virtually everything, right? Past performance is no indication of future returns. Right. Uh, ETFs, mutual funds, stocks can lose value. There's no guarantee you're going to make a profit, you know, uh, and on and on and on. So while those disclosures and disclaimers are very important, I really hesitate to call any kind of cryptocurrency, even Bitcoin, an investment opportunity. Mm -hmm. I would say it's a highly speculative endeavor. I would say... <laughs> that um, you know, at best, even if you're a high net worth individual, maybe two, three percent of your net worth uh, of a portfolio, maybe maximum five percent, mm -hmm. could theoretically be um, invested in these alternative asset classes because if it all goes to zero, you're not, you haven't completely blown up your portfolio. Sure. You're only down five percent, right? Yeah. So I don't use the word investment very frequently and I actually, I don't particularly care for that. but. Sure. If you do have a speculative streak in you, yeah. you can invest in, you know, junior minor companies from Canada, right? There's penny stocks, the pink sheets. So they all have a very small place in a portfolio. And I would kind of put the cryptocurrencies in that type of bin. Highly speculative. Mm -hmm. Assume you're going to lose everything and hope for the best. Would you say you have a long, long, long mm -hmm. history of working as a trader? Sure. With SIBO for over 20 years in yep. various facets, you were with... Uh, it seems like you pretty much did everything at the Equitech Group for right. a, over 18 years. Right. You were a risk manager. You, you worked with options trading. You were you helped design their um, the uh, trading platform. Their trading sure. platform. Do the crypto markets have any similarities functionally to say the options market? The is there any similarity between them and the traditional financial markets? Well, you know, I know. So I traded in the OEX pit for, I started there in 1983. Yeah. 
And when we were looking at the VIX, which was just a, like an at-the-money straddle, we had this big board in the OEX pit. Uh -huh. And it was just really the calculation of volatility based on the at-the-money straddle. And probably in the mid to late 80s, I began listening to people talking about volatility as an asset class. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, asset class? It's not an asset class. It doesn't exist. It's just a number. Uh, it doesn't really mean anything. And then I read you know, several books from portfolio managers. Uh, Swenson, I can't remember his first name, but uh, Swenson wrote, he was the chief investment officer for the Yale Endowment. Uh -huh. And he said, volatility is in fact an asset class because if you use market, uh, modern market theory for investing, you want to sell a little bit on the upside and you want to buy on the downside, right? So you're kind of scalping your, your internal gamma as your bond stock portfolio goes out of whack. So it was then that I began to realize that volatility really is an asset class, right? So I think we're kind of in that same space with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're grasping at straws, trying to figure out if it's correlated or non-correlated asset class. And I think a, a case could be made that is it is in fact an, a non-correlated asset class like gold, like mm -hmm. silver, that should potentially be a part of an investment portfolio. It's hard to say what exactly it's like because it's like its own beast. It's its own thing. And we're not sure what it's like yet. I remember also being in the, in the trading pit when the commodity prices were uh, had a drought. Sometimes as commodity prices would go up, the market would go down because it was believed inflation pressure, inflationary pressures were going to uh, hit the, the stock market. Mm -hmm. And then there came a time when corn prices would go up, the market would go up because it was considered good for the economy. So it all kind of depends on your perspective of what you believe is going on at the time economically. So it's hard to say exactly what kind of connection directly there is to current markets, but I think we're getting there. That's a long, a long, a long answer for a short question, but we're getting there. So speaking of getting there, speaking of the markets maturing, you posted on Twitter that unlike a lot of Bitcoin proponents, mm -hmm. you are disappointed with the Bitcoin community's efforts to establish a Bitcoin ETF. Yes. That tweet that you made actually caught the attention of Nick Zabo, who, if you're not familiar with him, he's a pretty big deal in the, in the cryptocurrency world. A lot of people suspect that he's actually the true identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, right. creator of Bitcoin. And uh, he's also the creator of the smart contract, which is a big deal with platforms like yes. Ethereum and EOS and so forth. And Nick Zabo seemed to agree with your stance. What I wanted to ask is why do you feel the Bitcoin community's support for a BTC ETF is misguided? <laughs> well, that's, that's Nick uh, retweeting that. It was like the, the zenith of my, my career <laughs> in the three years of, of blockchain. Well, you know, it's one of those things where you have to be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. Sure. So in my experience uh, as a, someone who was a market maker and a liquidity provider in exchange-traded funds, mm -hmm. you basically have an unlimited amount of creation and redemption baskets that you can perform during the day. So what, how does a market maker do it? So a market maker is quoting a two-sided market in an ETF. He sells the ETF and he buys the underlying basket, right? Uh -huh. And then from there at the end of the day at 259, he reverses the whole thing with Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, right there, the, the, uh, the authorized participant to kind of flip the whole thing out. So next morning when you come in, you have no position on and you just have your P&L. Mm -hmm. So because of the quote-unquote unlimited number of creation and redemption baskets that are available, how do you take a, f a, a token like Bitcoin that has a fixed limited supply of 21 million tokens, 17.8, almost 18 million are already mined and out of circulation, quote-unquote, sure. and then create an unlimited security for the exchanges based on an incredibly rare 
fixed number of tokens. I just don't see how that works. Well, what that means is you're going to be creating the same kind of issues that Bitcoin was meant to end. Right. Rehypothecation of assets, the stock clearing firm behind the scenes lending assets, not knowing really where they're at, like we saw during the 2008-2009 debacle. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of felt like the Bitcoin community wants adoption so bad that they're willing to, for lack of a better term, they're, they're, they're willing to just embrace Wall Street just to get validation. It's like, it's like being right. in a bad relationship with somebody, <laughs> you know? And so I just felt that the Bitcoin community was, was looking for validation from the wrong group of people. And while as an investment advisor, I would love to see a Bitcoin ETF. I would love to use that in my client portfolios. I would love as an option trader to be quoting a two-sided market on a Bitcoin ETF. It, it would be the cat's meow. But I just think you've got to be careful what you wish for because we're probably going to end up, you know, ruining Bitcoin as we know it if it sure. gets too uh, well adopted by the mainstream financial services and exchanges and yeah. ETF sponsors. That so. makes that makes sense because like an ETF is by nature a regulated thing, right? Yes. And on one hand, you know, there's a ton of fraud. There are a ton of risks that make Bitcoin a potentially uh, dangerous thing to kind of dabble with, especially if you don't really know what you're doing. Right. On the other hand, it was designed to be unregulatable, unre right? right? Like it was designed to exist outside of the traditional financial system. And it almost seems like sometimes the more, the tighter you tr you grab this thing, the more it's, it exactly. slips away from you, so. Exactly, I mean, and you can also see it in 2007 and 2008, I think that's when the book Flash Boys was written, mm -hmm. to talk about the, um, I'm not quite sure of the publishing date there, but. You know, they talk about algorithmic traders and how they abandoned Microsoft Windows and Microsoft products and went to actually burning the trading algorithm onto the chip, very similar to an ASIC mining machine. So here we have this, you're, you're embracing this new technology, but using a very old legacy type of uh, bloatware, right? Mm -hmm. So that so the companies that embraced old Windows-based and Linux-based software really were the ones that went out of business. Yeah. People that, that, that embraced the newer technology were the ones that were able to thrive. So I'm kind of nervous about taking a completely new technology like Bitcoin mm -hmm. and squeezing it into the ETF box, so to speak. Sure. So putting old wine in a new bottle. In other putting words. wine in an, in, a, in an old skin. Yes, new wine in an old skin. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I got that backwards. <laughs> That's right. I wanted to, um, the first time we met when I was attending one of your talks, one of my personal takeaways was you talked a lot about the micropayment systems that have become mm -hmm. very, very popular. In fact, arguably integral to local economies in Africa and Southeast Asia. Yes. And these are, you know, small transactions that people make on phones. And I'm not talking like iPhones. I'm talking like old school, like... Nokia flip phones for like 30 bucks. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you to reiterate sort of what you talked about that time, because I feel like our, our listeners could benefit from from hearing you talk sure. about that, because it's, it's a really interesting idea. Bitcoin, as one example, was designed to be a payment system, if nothing yes. else. So can you sort of talk about the micropayment systems in Africa and Southeast Asia and so forth and how they relate to Bitcoin and why that's a significant comparison? Well, you know, we, we really have it made here in the United States, and that is when we can send payment from one person to the other using PayPal or Venmo. You know, we have uh, apps on our smartphones that have a QR code where you can buy your coffee at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so we don't really know how hard it is to be able to transfer money from the United States to even the UK mm -hmm. or Africa, South America. It's, it's very sticky and it, it's, it's very clunky still. 
For example, I did a presentation at the London Stock Exchange on derivatives back in 2013. And even though we've done business with the UK since 1776, it still took me about 26 days to get paid from the UK to my bank. And I couldn't believe it took that long to yeah. wire transfer that, that money. Had Bitcoin, had I been aware of Bitcoin back then, had Bitcoin been a payment service, I could have received my consulting fee before I even walked through the revolving doors in London. Yeah. And it would have been a lot less expensive than what the local banks charged me along the way. Mm. Again, to give you another example, if I may, that is, there, there was a local Catholic parish in uh, Elmhurst, Illinois, that raised about $15,000 for an orphanage in remote area of India. Mm -hmm. It took 45 days for that payment to be physically, physically transported from the United States to India. And, and it would take me 10 minutes to give you the whole story, but let's just say that it was incredibly expensive and it was wrought with fear and potential for theft. Mm -hmm. So to be able to securely send a payment, no, regardless of how big or how small, to any remote area of the world, the same way you might send a text message while you're on the bus or on a train or you're checking your Twitter feed when you're sitting in the bathroom, yeah. it's, it can be that easy and that less expensive. I cannot make a charitable donation to somebody in London because the banks will not cash a U.S. check. I can't make a donation to a Kenyan orphanage because there's no way they can take that money. Mm -hmm. So the micropayment system across the globe, that's the real value proposition of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. It's not a Bitcoin ETF. The true thing that really moves my heart is we have billions of people that are still living in poverty and we would be able to help them mm -hmm. almost instantaneously for virtually no cost and allow them to join the uh, economic activity in, in the globe. And to me, that's the huge value prop of, of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Let's say that, I guess this is already happening. I was going to say, let's say that widespread adoption of Bitcoin, as one again, as one example, mm -hmm. becomes propagated throughout rural communities in Africa or mm -hmm. less populated regions of Southeast Asia, for example. Sure. What do you think would happen if that became a widespread thing that everyone knew how to do and everyone was doing within five years? How would that affect or transform or not affect at all those, uh, those economies? Well, I tell you, I'm, I'm probably more bullish on emerging markets and international markets than, than I've ever been in my you yeah. know, 15 years in investment advisor and 30 plus years in, in the trading world. You know, 75% of the Kenyan economy uses this Nokia phone that you're talking about. I mean, I threw a phone out like that. I put it in a recycling bin maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. So these phones are able to permit transfer of value with a cell phone company, company like in the back end without even knowing what's going on. The yeah. pastor at our parish sends his mom money on an, app, uh, on an iPhone app, and it costs him nothing, zero, to send money from the United States to his mom in Kenya. Mm -hmm. So what do I think? I think that you would see an explosion in economic growth that the world has never seen before. I think people are still trading chickens and cattle and eggs in terms of their exchange. And to be able to have a currency or some kind of unit of monetary value that can be exchanged between people who are still may not have clean water mm -hmm. and they still may not have clothes and they still mm -hmm. may not have transportation and they they charge their phones in a community setting in the middle of town on a solar panel that was donated by you know some charitable organization so they're still way behind the curve but they can leapfrog over all of that and be 
like 5G ready within five years. Mm -hmm. And for them to not have to go through the cost of expense and like when we remember during the, the internet.com bubble, you know, Global Crossing was laying this fiber network across the ocean. Well, they eventually went bankrupt, right? I mean, we paid the price, they paid the price for today's internet backbone that we have. And so for emerging markets to not have to go through that, I think that's a big deal. What, what would need to happen for that to become a reality? Do you think that that's a realistic thing in the next five years or is it something that might take like 20 years to, to happen if it happens at all? Probably more like the 20 year time frame. As much as, as much as I want it to happen in five years, mm -hmm. you know, let's remember that the first time you could download a free piece of software to create a website out of using HTML code was probably 1992, I'm guessing, 1994. Maybe Netscape kind of came around that time, AOL. Yeah. Kind of mid-90s-ish. And look where we are today, right? You, you used to log into AOL.com or Yahoo.com and it would take 10 minutes for the page to load. You'd go make a pot of coffee and then come back. And, and now we're god awful, like screeching as it was right. connecting to the yeah. right. You know, we got we went from a twenty four hundred baud modem to like a fifty six, and everybody was like out of their mind with speed. And my first computer was purchased with a twenty megabyte hard drive, and the salesman told me that it was all the memory, all the storage I would ever need for the rest of my life. <laughs> and so here again, I think that things take time, and we're very impatient. We want instant gratification, but it's happening now, and it's going to happen slowly, kind of like. You're not even going to know it's happening, but it will be happening, and things will get better, I think, across the world. Well, Bill, I've enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you so much once again for coming down to the studio. Before we go, is there anything that you'd like to say to our audience? Well, you know, I'm just really excited to be a part of the Chicago blockchain community. I've been doing some consulting for Athena Coworking Space, which is a Chicago, actually the Midwest's first blockchain-centric co-working space. Mm -hmm. And being in the community, being a part of everything that's going on, all the meetup groups, the events at the universities, I'm, I'm just, I'm thrilled to be here and just thrilled to be a part of it. It's, it's exciting. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. For more news, videos, and podcasts like this, head over to johnlothiannews.com.